So as is our custom, we uh, follow our pastoral prayer with a reading of the sermon text and another prayer. But I want to say a couple of comments about the prayer I'm going to pray so that you can decide if you want to join me in it. Rather than just conscripting you into my prayer, I'm going to give you an opportunity to decide if you want to be part of it. There's more than two types of prayer, but I just want to highlight two types because I want to advocate for and encourage you to join me in in one of those two. I'm thinking of Luke 18, the Pharisee and the publican. There's the sanctimonious, pious religiosity of a self-righteous petitioner, the Pharisee. I thank you for how much spiritual good I do. I thank you for all the spiritual activity I'm involved in. I thank you for how basically awesome I am at doing spiritual stuff. And I also want to thank you that I'm not like all those bad people out there who don't think like me, who are wrong about everything, and I'm right about it all. And I just want to thank you, God, that I'm better than all my neighbors. That's the sanctimonious, pious petition. It's really a stench in the nostrils of God advocating against it. And I'm advocating for the broken-hearted cry of a guilty sinner. Uh, in the original, it, it could be argued that Luke 18 is a definite article. Be merciful to me, the sinner. In comparison, most translations don't render it that way, and I'm not trying to get into the weeds of how to put an indefinite a sinner or definite the sinner, but I just want to say that when we see our sin, in light of the greatness and holiness of Christ, an irresistible response rises to God, and that response is, I need grace. Today's sermon text is going to tell you where you can find the grace you need. So I want to ask God to give it to us. And I want to invite you to join me in asking God to give us grace. But he doesn't give grace to the self-righteous. He doesn't give grace to the people that are good at doing the spiritual life and Jesus is a little supplement as needed. He gives grace to people who are cognizant of their need and have a desperate cry for Jesus. Would you join me at the throne of grace as we ask for that even now? Father, we ask that the fullness of Jesus, the grace of upon grace of Jesus, the grace and truth of Jesus will be ours now. We ask in his name. Amen. Our sermon text is John chapter 1. We'll deal with today verses 16 and 17. And I invite you to that passage. I'm reading from the New American Standard, John chapter 1, verse 16. Hear the voice of God talking to you now. For of his fullness, we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. May the Lord help us to engage with him through what he has revealed in those inexhaustible sentences. I believe there are two main things that John wants us to know in verses 16 and 17. He wants us to know the fullness of Jesus, that's number one, and he wants us to know the flow of God's grace, how you may appropriate Christ's fullness. There are two channels that I believe these passages explain to us The grace of God flows into our lives through. So the fullness of Jesus and the flow of God's grace, and under that second, we'll look at the two avenues through which that grace from God flows into our lives. If we're going to be among the undeserving recipients of the fullness of Jesus, we must be made sensible of how to tap into the supply of his enoughness and that supply is only available to those who are made 
cognizant of our need. Put another way, the resources to live unto God are fully available to every last one of us in the Son of God, through the Word of God, by the grace of God. So we're going to take these themes in two parts, the fullness of Jesus and the flow of God's grace. Just before we touch the first one, we saw last week why it is necessary for Jesus, if you will, to increase. That's John the Baptist's word from John 3. For Jesus to be exalted, for Jesus to have the place of preeminence, for Him to be of what John says in verse 15, highest rank. We saw why that is necessary last week. Namely, He exists eternally. You can't collide with the electric current of the power of the omnipotent God by faith in Jesus. Believe that He exists eternally and not give Him the place of preeminence in your life. Let me say it again. You cannot collide with the electric current of the power of the the God of the universe, the omnipotent God of the universe. You can't touch that electric current, believe that Jesus is eternal, and not give him the place of highest honor. Isn't that what John says in verse 15? He is of higher rank than me because he existed before me. So last week, we saw why it's necessary for for Jesus to increase, and this week, God helping, we'll see how that is accomplished. How does he get the place of highest honor? From whence does the power flow For the fullness of the grace and truth of Jesus to come continually into our lives. We'll unpack that truth. Two points, verse 16 and 17. 16a, point one, the fullness of Jesus. 16b and 17, the flow of God's grace. First, the fullness of Jesus. Let your eyes fall on that opening phrase of verse 16. For of His fullness... We have all received. Of His fullness. What kind of fullness? You don't receive something unless you have some semblance of an accurate understanding of the fullness you're receiving. He's bigger and better than we're ever going to conceive. Even for endless eternities, we will not exhaust the fullness of Jesus in terms of our awareness and apprehension and knowledge he's beyond us we forever will be getting to know the love of Jesus which is beyond knowing but we do have to know something of his fullness to know that we're on the receiving end of it in my view there's a very strategic nuance in John's choice of wording in that opening line of his fullness the word fullness in John's rendering of it in in his original way of putting it down has an active meaning that which fills and keeps on filling Leon Morris says John the writer is drawing attention in that little phrase of his fullness with this active idea of continual filling, quote, the infinite extent of Jesus' resources for all who receive from him. The ESV renders that phrase from his fullness. The NIV, out of his fullness. The King James, of his fullness. This word fullness, pleromatos. It means full. 17 times in the New Testament. Listen to a couple of examples in relationship to Jesus. For it was the Father's good pleasure, it made the Father exuberantly happy. For all the fullness, there's the word, to dwell in Jesus. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things. 
having made peace through the blood of His cross. It makes God happy that Jesus is so infinitely full that He can never be not only not exhausted, that's true, but it makes God happy that Jesus can never be depleted in the least. Here's another example of that word in relationship to Jesus also coming from the epistle to the Colossians. For in Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's the same word. So can we just back up to last week's sermon one more time? You can't collide with the electric power of the omnipotence of God in Christ by faith and not give Him preeminence. Now we all sin. And in sin, we fundamentally seek to deify ourselves. So sin is a, an attempt to diminish the preeminence of Jesus in our life and to exalt ourselves above Him. That's fundamentally what sin is. Self-deification. And we all do that. I'm not saying that if you collide with the electric current of the omnipotence of God in Christ by faith, you will never at times sin. You will never at times diminish. But I'm saying you cannot, you cannot. It's not that you will not. I'm telling you, you cannot collide with the electric current of the power of God in Christ by faith and not be deeply grieved when you sin. So if Paul were meditating on John 1.16, who wrote the book of Colossians, those two uses of fullness that I just referenced. If the Apostle Paul were meditating on John 1.16, of his fullness we have all received, I believe Paul would say something very close to what F.F. Bruce said, of his interpretation of this verse after he meditated on it for long, long hours. And I'm citing this from our Gospel of John teleos study that we did here at Grace Church a number of years ago. F.F. Bruce writes, put on your listening ears, this plentitude, this abundance of divine glory and goodness which resides in Christ is an ocean from which all His people may draw without ever diminishing its content. What the followers of Christ draw from the ocean of divine fullness is grace on top of grace. One wave of grace being constantly replaced by a fresh wave of grace. There is no limit to the supply of grace which God has placed at His people's disposal in Christ. He's that full. Another way to say it in shorthand, and we speak this way a lot around Grace Church, and I know we come up with terminology that's kind of native to our congregation, and it doesn't make sense outside these walls, but I want to tell you where we get one of our, one of our words. Enoughness. Sufficiency. The enoughness of Jesus. A few of uh, the brothers in the room, Jackson Jarvis, Bennett Russell, and Dan Reisman, joined me a couple of weeks ago in the beautiful mountains of Montana for a one-week uh, Bible class that I teach up there in the fall. We're in one of these most beautiful settings of God's creation. We're in the Dearborn Canyon of Montana, and if you try to imagine it, it's just better <laughs> than that. We got a thousand-foot butte peak of rock that just juts out of the ground on this side. We got Steamboat Mountain on this side, and we got just gorgeous creation on this side. It's at the end of a 20-mile gravel road. Cell phone service ended a long time ago. And the next step off of campus... The end of that gravel road is where campus is. The next step, you step onto 1.5 million acres of untouched wilderness called the Bob Marshall. It's gorgeous. But, but before you step onto the ground of that wilderness, you take one step off campus and you would step into the Dearborn River, which runs around and beyond the campus. 
Well, may not sound like the best thing to you, but to me it's like heaven on earth. Dan Reisman and I, I don't know how long we sat there silently just staring. We didn't say a word. He's in his chair, got his coffee. I'm in my chair, got my coffee. And we're just sitting shoulder to shoulder and we're just looking at this river. And Dan said something that I think helps. When he finally piped up, I realized he had been drinking deeply of the fountain of the fullness of Christ. And what he said, he could, he could put it better. You'll have to ask Dan for the, for the better version. But it basically goes like this. Now, where we're at, the river's not raging. It's kind of slowly running. More than a trickle, less than a torrent. And under the water, clear as crystal, you can see the bottom. And rising above the water in the middle of the stream, you see plenty of large and smaller rocks sticking out. And here's Dan's observation. All the rocks under the water and all the rocks half submerged below the water have the same characteristic. They're smooth. All the rocks sticking above the water have the same characteristics. They're jagged or or rough where they're not submerged. And he said, that's what it's like living under the constant flow of the grace of Christ. He rolls over your life. You're sitting in the middle of that stream. And before you know it, he's constantly flooding you again. And again. And again. And the source never runs dry. And the flow never stops. And then I have to ask myself, what part of my life is not being totally shaped by the fullness of the flow of the grace of Jesus? And if there is an aspect of me that's not transformed by Him, then it's because I'm not putting myself in that stream. It's not because His supply has run dry. One brother sent me a bunch of pictures of a commentary I don't have on this passage, and Herman Ritterboss said, concerning of His fullness, quote, Jesus is an ever-accessible and inexhaustible fountain. Leon Morris, Christ is the source of all of our blessings, of his fullness we have all received. Well, how do we receive that fullness? Number two, the flow of God's grace. The fullness of Christ, do you want His fullness? John's about to tell us two ways you can have Him. One is receiving and the other is realizing. That's the way the New American Standard translates these very difficult to translate words. Of His fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace. That's one way you get it, receive. And the second way is realize, verse 17 The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So, verse 16, you receive. Verse 17, you realize. Let's dig in. First, receiving grace upon grace. The reason I read various translations a moment ago of that phrase, of His fullness, we have all received is so that we would all reckon with the reality that these prepositions are difficult for us to envision, but by faith, every Christian knows what John's talking about. This is not some kind of complex differential math equation. This isn't upper-level collegiate calculus. These prepositions that are, no doubt, it's difficult to translate, of His fullness we have all received, Of his fullness, in his fullness, from his fullness, by his fullness, yes. In Christ, from Christ, by Christ, with Christ, 
This is another, I believe, of John's not-so-subtle hints at the infinite supply of the resources of grace that are bound up in Jesus. We'll get to the phrase grace upon grace, but before we even get there, let's just pause for a moment on that little we have all received. How many thimbles do you have to dip into the ocean before you drain it dry? Well, though it would take you know, 10 million eternities probably for human beings to try to accomplish such a feat. Let's say we dip a thimble in, put it on a rocket ship, take it to Mars, pour it out, come back, dip a thimble, put it on a rocket ship, take it to Mars, pour it out. How many times do you have to do that before there's no more ocean on Earth? I don't know. But let's say all the people in all the Earth all simultaneously dip a thimble, put it on a rocket ship, all take it to Mars, come back, do it again. I don't know how long it's going to take to do it, but eventually you could accomplish the task. But what John is saying is all the people who have ever dipped into Christ have all received all the fullness of all of His grace and have never not only drained Him dry, but have, not, have also not in the least depleted Him. So verse 15 puts an accent, on, an accent mark on Jesus' eternality. He existed before me. Verse 16 puts an accent on his infinite abundance of his fullness. We've all received this active fullness of Jesus fully received in our life. All who receive grace receive from Jesus, and yet Jesus remains full. What a glorious truth of our Savior. Let me just say it simply to you, friends. Right here, Right now, whether you've come a million times or you've never come at all, there's room at the cross for you right now. There's grace in Jesus for you right now. The word received is translated well in the NAS. It's the exact same word in the exact same tense, the verb received as verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Same word, same tense, right here in verse 16. It appears that John is not only saying that the full supply of Christ is always readily available for all who believe, but that because Jesus is of such a fullness, he never, never, do you hear me? Never, never ceases to flow into the lives of those who have truly received him. So the activity is his in the present, the receiving is something, I believe John is saying, that has happened to you already. No doubt we continue to receive from his fullness, but you can't continue to receive if you never began to receive. That's why I believe he uses that tense of that verb in that sentence in that way. Christ's fullness never ceases to flow into the lives of those who have truly received him. Do you know that that's why it's impossible for one to lose his or her salvation? Because once Jesus invades a person's life, takes them prisoner unto God, captures their heart, makes you, Romans 6, a slave of righteousness, makes you alive unto God, John 3, causes you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1. Grants to you the spirit of adoption, Romans 8. Pours out God's love by his spirit in your heart, Romans 5. Once that happens to you, it's not dependent on you. It's dependent on Him to continue to flow into you. The grace you need is not a grace that is not already yours if you belong to Jesus. So now the grace upon grace we have all received the full fullness of Jesus. Now the grace upon grace. The grace that we need is the grace that is fully available to us right here, right now in the same person we received when we trusted Him to save us in the first place. Do you see here that John is intimately, intricately, indecipherably connecting the grace that we receive to a person that we receive? Grace is not a thing God gives you. We've said around here many times, grace is not like a cosmic ooze that God just pours out. You need some grace? Here, I'll pour some into your life. No, no, no. Grace is not a thing. Grace is a person. 
Christians have all received this grace on top of grace when we were given to the Son of God by the Spirit's power upon true conversion. This phrase, grace upon grace, is the abundant inheritance of all who have received Christ. You will not ever face a situation, a moment, an experience, a hardship, a trial, a challenge. You will never in Christ experience anything for which His all-sufficient grace is not exactly the match for your need. John lays emphasis upon on grace in, in the prologue. Verse eight, first 18 verses of John 1. First 18 verses, John lays emphasis on grace. I would say he lays heavy emphasis upon grace because it's mentioned in verse 14, 16, and 17. Guess how many times grace is mentioned in the remainder of the Gospel of John? Zero. This is the last time verse 16 and 17, that he's going to say grace. He's telling us at the beginning, at the outset, that all the grace, the constant flow of grace, the grace on top of grace, I'm going to try to interpret that, that phrase in a moment, is in this person, Jesus, and then he proceeds to show us the glory of this one in his life, ministry, atoning death, and salvation accomplishing resurrection. He doesn't say grace again. He shows us the grace of God in Christ. When you got saved, for those of you who are, God put into your front pocket the key to the storehouse of His infinite grace, and His name is Jesus. I'll say it provocatively. I believe this is true, but I'm saying it so that you'll listen to me, not as a Sunday preacher listener. If you seek the grace of God, you'll never get it. If you go hard after grace, you'll never find it. I could say the same thing about so many other wonderful experiences of the Christian life. If you seek assurance of your salvation, you can't have it. If you seek for peace in your heart, you can't have it. If you seek blessing or joy, I, we could continue on. If you seek grace, you won't get it. But if you seek Jesus... You'll have all the grace you ever need. If you seek Christ, you will have assurance deep in your bones because John, who wrote this, said in his epistle, he who has the Son of God has the life. And he who doesn't have the Son does not have the life. Well, one comment on this phrase, grace upon grace, before we go to the second way this grace is realized in our life. Grace upon grace, it's been deeply debated. How do you translate it? What's the best way to put it? The auntie, the word in the middle, upon, grace, auntie, grace. How do you, how do you translate that? Uh, D.A. Carson summarized the, the prevailing views in church history and wrote, by far the most popular modern interpretation holds that auntie, grace upon grace, is in addition to. Well, then Carson goes on to disagree with that interpretation and says he thinks it means instead of, grace instead of grace, and he explains why. But I, I found his explanation uh, unconvincing, not as compelling, probably because I'm dumb, but nonetheless, I, I found Leon Morris to be more convincing, who translates it grace upon grace, and explains it this way. It's one sentence, but I, I, I promise if, if we would, by God's Spirit, believe it, radical transformation in our lives. This is what Morris said, grace upon grace means, and, and I think he's spot on. Quote, grace knows no interruption and no limit. Remember Dan's river comment? No interruption, the river never stops. And no limit, the bed never goes dry. Grace knows no interruption. And then quote, grace means an ever-deepening experience of what? How do you know if you have God's grace upon grace in your life? Morris said this is the meaning of the word. An ever-deepening experience of the presence and blessing of God. Is that the way grace is at work in your life? When our brother Tim Kane, pastor in California, was here with us a year or two ago, 
he, he told some very, very challenging stories through which they've walked. Loss of multiple children, extreme hardships in some other situations of life. And then he asked himself, he found himself asking the question, Tim said, do I actually live what I try to preach? And what Tim had tried to preach his whole life, and he still does, is all Christians grow in their love for Jesus. We're not static, we're dynamic, we're increasing. It's called sanctification. The life of Christ being more fully matured in our life. And it's fine to pray this way, and I know God knows what we mean, and He sanctifies our best prayers, but sometimes we pray, give me more of you, Jesus. Theologically, that's a bad kind of way to put it, because you get all of Christ upon conversion. He gets more of you. Give more of me to Jesus, God is really more consistent with the biblical narrative. But back to Tim, help me love you more. And what Tim noticed as he walked through these horrific hardships in life, some of the worst kinds of stuff humans can experience under heaven, the hardest kinds of things, Tim and his wife Abby found they didn't love Jesus more. And he was very bothered by that, as you should be. But what he found was that he loved him still. And then the more he communed with the Lord and poured his heart out before God and prayed about that hard, hard, hard stuff that you'll never get over in this lifetime, he found that what was happening is, if you will, the water table was staying the same, but the well was going deeper. And if you love him still, I promise you, you love him more because God's drilling down in your life through everything that touches you and if your love goes down, you need to be worried. But if your love doesn't increase but stays the same, you ought to give God glory because He's making the fountain deeper. Now listen to Leon Morris one more time. Grace means an ever-deepening experience of the presence and blessing of God. The fullness of Christ. The fullness of grace. What is grace? I jive with John Piper's definition. It, it, it's complex, but it's worth listening to. Piper defined grace this way, this way. Grace is the pleasure of God to magnify the worth of God by giving sinners the right and the power to delight in God without obscuring the glory of God. One more time. Grace is the pleasure of God to magnify the worth of God by giving sinners the right and the power to delight in God without obscuring the glory of God. Do you know if you try to worship God without the grace of Jesus, you actually tarnish His glory? If you do an end around Jesus to get to God, you sin in the process of worship. It's the kind of thing God would say about Isaiah 1. Get your worship away from me. It's a stench in my nostrils. So grace is God's pleasure to magnify God's worth by giving to you, and I love these two words, the right and the power, the judicial declaration that you are righteous. You can come into my presence now. Grace is God giving you the right and the power, the supply you need, the fullness of the grace constantly flowing into your life so that when you worship him, you do it by his strength and not your own. And when you delight in God, you don't obscure His glory, you magnify His worth because He gave you, like the Pharisee and the publican I started with, He gave you all the resources to glorify Him. You're not good at worship. That's not why He accepts your praise, or your prayer, your quiet time, your baptism, Lord's Supper, your evangelism. No, 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 no. He gives you all that you offer to Him. He's the great benefactor. He's never benefited. God is not served by human hands as though He needed anything. He's constantly, benevolently, through Christ alone, period, pouring grace into the lives of his people so that we may glorify God. That's grace. That grace comes to you one after the other, wave after wave, flow of river after flow of river. You sit in the fountain, Christ comes to you. Grace on top of grace, constantly being your supply as you receive Christ. And then finally, realize. This is verse 17. It's a, it's a difficult verse too. 
for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now let your eyes fall on the end of that verse, Jesus Christ. Now we're familiar with that connection. We say in reference to Him many times, maybe many of us most times, Jesus Christ. Do you find it interesting, significant, that in one of the four biographies of Jesus, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in John's Gospel, that connection is only used two times? Jesus Christ, this verse, and John 17.3. Nowhere else are those two connected in John's Gospel. In John 17.3, I believe we get the explanation of what he touches here. When in John 17.3, many of you know this, it's not Jesus teaching, it's Jesus praying. And he says, Father, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life hinges on your knowing, that's experiential knowledge in John 17, 3, gnosko. That's not you know intellectually, that's you experientially embrace. That is a knowing of relationship. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If you don't know Jesus Christ in that way, you don't have eternal life according to Jesus And that's the only other time that we get what we find here in verse 17. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. This phrase, grace and truth, I believe further explained grace upon grace from the previous verse. That contrast, the law given through Moses, grace and truth realized through Jesus Christ, is not pitting law and gospel against one another. It's rather John showing as he's going to do elsewhere throughout the remainder of his gospel, that Jesus is actually the ultimate fulfillment of Moses' life and ministry. And the law was intended from the beginning to show us our need for grace. It was prayed earlier. The law is your tutor, your schoolmaster to lead you to Christ. The law is not sinful, but it definitely exposes our sinfulness. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. But when Moses smashed the two tablets of stone after he had received the Ten Commandments on top of Mount Sinai because he saw the people down at the bottom worshiping the golden calf when he descended from the presence of the glory cloud where he received those Ten Commands, when he smashed those tablets, what did God do? God graciously replaced them. In Exodus 34, Moses is back on top of the mountain. God is again giving the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, But the first thing God says in His interchange with Moses the second time is a word of grace. Listen to this. Exodus 34, verse 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. That's God's voice to Moses as soon as he ascends back to the presence of Christ, I believe. We're told in verse 8 of Exodus 34, Moses made haste to bow low to the earth in worship. He said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst. There's the presence of God. Even though the people are so obstinate and pardon our iniquity and sin, there's mercy and grace, and take us as your own possession. So the law given through Moses in verse 17 If you read that in light of Exodus 34, I I believe it refers to more than just the Ten Commandments. And based on the way John draws attention to Moses in the remainder of his Gospel, I I believe John is at least referring to all the writings of Moses, and my estimation is the entire life and ministry of Moses. Moses is mentioned 12 times in John's Gospel. Let me share three of them with you. Once later in chapter 1, when Jesus calls Philip to be an apostle, and Philip instead goes to Nathanael and finds Nathanael under a fig tree, and what Philip says to Nathanael is, we found him, John 1.45, of whom Moses in the law and all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses, not a contradiction to Moses. 
So if you say, oh, Moses gave us law, Jesus gave us grace, then you're going to quickly fall into the, if you take that to its logical end, you're going to fall into the trap of God of the Old Testament bad, God of the New Testament good. Wrath, mercy. I don't think that's what John's doing. Second example, John chapter 3, the great you must be born again chapter. You all know John 3.16. Do you know the two verses right before it? Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that all who believe in Him will have eternal life. That's a connection, not a contrast. That's John saying, take the fulfillment of Moses' life and ministry and look to the Gospel of Christ. Just like Moses held up the brazen serpent and all who looked at it were healed, so also God is going to raise up the Lord Jesus and He's going to suspend Him on a pole outside of city of Jerusalem, on the hill of Golgotha, and he's going to be crucified. And anybody, Jesus said, John 3, 15, who will believe in him, not just look at him, believe in him will have eternal life. That's a connection. In John 5, 46, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me. So when, you say, when we say law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. I believe John is saying to us, something about continuity, not about contrast. He's saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the people of his day held dear about Moses. In meditating on John 1.17, Ritterboss put it succinctly, everything up to this point, the whole Bible up to that point, leads to the story of Jesus. Now let your word, eyes fall on that little word, all, the law is given through Moses, grace and truth relative to Jesus Christ. But in verse 16, it says, we've all received such grace. Who does that all include? It includes Moses of the next verse. Ritterboff says, what Moses saw of the revelation of Yahweh's glory was nothing other than the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. I believe that. I believe Moses saw the glory of God in Christ. I believe the whole reason Moses came to the Mount of Transfiguration and looked upon the resplendent glory of the Shekinah of God in the face of Jesus was to say he's the very one to whom he had looked by faith all those many centuries before. I'll put it as simply as I know how as we land this plane. Do you want to know why I believe Moses is in heaven, however you want to put it, in glory with Christ right now? I do believe Moses is in glory. I don't believe it's because his name is in the Bible. I don't believe Moses is in glory right now because I believe he's there. But I don't believe he's there because he was the leader of Israel during the Exodus. I don't believe he's in glory right now because he saw with his own eyes the Passover night. I don't believe it's because he put his staff in the Red Sea and saw it part million plus, million and a half Israelites walked across on dry ground. I don't believe it's because he went up on the mountain twice, fasted for 40 days, received the Ten Commandments, ate the manna, drank the water from the rock, had his staff turned into a serpent, serpent and then back to his staff again. I don't believe it's because he received 25 chapters of detailed instruction about how to build the tabernacle, the presence chamber of God on earth, where the sacrifice is made and accepted. I don't think it's because he oversaw the construction of the tabernacle in its meticulous deep detail, or that he occupied the tent of meeting and 10,000 men would stand at their doorway while Moses met with God in the presence of his glory. I don't believe it's because of a hundred other episodes in Moses' amazing adventures with God Adventures with God and his people that we read about in the Old Testament. He's not in heaven for any of those reasons. I believe Moses is with Christ right now in glory because he looked forward by faith to the coming of Jesus and the gospel accomplishments of Jesus just as we look back on Jesus and his gospel accomplishments. In other words, Jesus is the only way that anyone ever has or ever will be saved. He is alone the exclusive pipeline of God's all-sufficient grace to you. You can't have grace unless you have it through Jesus. That's it. Period. D.A. Carson says, the grace and truth which came by Jesus can never be disassociated with himself. It's a hendiatus. It's a big fancy word to say one thing, not two. It's all over the Bible, these kinds of things. Pastor, teacher, on and on we could go. Two things. 
really one thing? Grace and truth. What John's saying at the beginning is God's not soft on sin. Grace is not God just sweeping your sin under the rug. It's a true grace, but it's a gracious truth. All in Jesus. He tells us the truth about ourselves. He tells us the truth about himself. himself, And he gives us all the grace necessary to be reconciled to him forever. The fullness of grace is beyond compare. Some of you are thinking, yeah, Jordan, I hear all this talk, grace upon grace and grace and truth through Jesus, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know how sinful I am. You don't know what occupies my idle thoughts. You don't know the kinds of things that I conceive in my mind or the way I feel about people who disagree with me. And, you know, we're in the middle of this big kind of ethnic turmoil and political turmoil and the way I think about people who don't have everything right like I do. You don't know what I think about people. You don't know what I do in my mind. You don't know the kind of sin I've been involved in in my past. I come in to you, Richard Sibbs' meditation on this passage, and many others like it. There's more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. He never welcomes the prayer of a self, self-righteous, self-righteous supplicant. Never. Like the Pharisee who stood up in the temple bragging on all his spiritual and moral achievements. Rather, Jesus welcomes the desperate cry of a guilty penitent who throws himself or herself into the almighty arms of Christ. If you say to me, you don't know all the bad I've done, you don't know all the sin I've committed, my response to you, not minimizing your sin in the least, in fact, it's worse than you think it is. The problem's not what you've done mainly. The problem is who you are. You have to be saved from all your sin, but you have to be saved from yourself. You have to be set free from self-love and self-righteousness and self-promotion. You have to give Jesus all of you. It's worse than you think. I'm not trying to minimize your sin, but if you were to say to me, you don't know all I've done, Jordan. I'm not like all those clean people who grew up in Christian homes doing little Bible studies and singing choruses at night around the dinner table. I would just say to you, I don't doubt all the bad you've done, and how tyrannically sinful it is. But you don't know how full of mercy and grace He is. You don't know yet what it's like to sit in the middle of a riverbed where there's a constant flow of grace coming to you, not because you deserve it, but to show you how great and gracious He is. And I want to say to you, if you will plunge yourself into the heart of the risen Jesus then you get John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If you'll plunge your life into the heart of the risen Jesus, the whole reason He came is because He wants you to know Him more than you want to know Him. The whole reason He died is because He wants your sins forgiven more than you could ever want them forgiven. He rose again to prove that He will forever be your righteousness if you will just have Him. And if He didn't want you to have eternal life, He would have left you in your sin. He would have exposed it to you, shown the light on it, pointed it out, been right about it the entire time, and sent you to the devil's hell for a billion eternities. And that would have been just, fair, and right. But what of this grace? Instead of leaving His Son unharmed in heaven, He didn't send Moses with a new set of fresh tablets to you. He sent Moses' Savior about whom that law spoke. One who fulfilled it perfectly because He embodied it fully. The law represents the character of God, but Christ incarnate came in the flesh fulfilling the law perfectly upholding all of its righteous standard, always glorifying God. We say it around here in shorthand a lot. He lived the life you were supposed to live, and then he died the death you were supposed to die. And when he rose again, he proved, if you'll just tap in, if you'll get grafted in, you take the wild olive shoot of your life, you cut off the the bottom of that branch, you submerge yourself into the Lord Jesus, the flow of grace coming to you, is what John Calvin said. This is my last comment.
as soon as we have departed from Christ, it is vain for us to seek a single drop of happiness. He's meditating on John 1.17. As soon as we have departed from Christ, it is vain for us to seek a single drop of happiness because God hath determined that whatever good shall reside, shall reside in Him alone. He assures us that we shall have no reason to fear the want of anything provided that we draw from the fullness of Christ, which is in very respect so complete that we shall experience Christ to be a truly inexhaustible fountain. Your grace is sufficient for me, for your power is perfected in weakness. So I want to encourage you to do something as a practical application. Just tell yourself a few dozen times a day, Jesus, your grace is enough right here, right now. Jesus, your grace is enough right here, right now. Say that. Not power of positive thinking, but believe that. Lord, I'm having a hard time believing that your grace is sufficient right here, right now. So just cause me to believe. Throw the mustard seed of my faith onto the mountain of Christ Almighty's shoulders and help me trust the object, not the size of my faith. Help me to not just say it, but believe it. The grace of Jesus is sufficient right here, right now, and for all eternity. And then share that. Tell as many people as you possibly can that Jesus, who is enough for you, is also enough for them too. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, it's a blessing to try to say things that are beyond the ability to grasp, let alone explain. But would you take this little widow's might as I throw it into the plate of the fullness of Jesus? And would you cause us to know that he is so full of grace upon grace, so full of grace upon grace, so thoroughly true grace and gracious truth that we'll never get to the bottom. And don't let us go to these empty cisterns, these broken cisterns that can hold no water. Don't let us commit the evil of turning our back on the fountain of Christ to try to find satisfaction, fulfillment, salvation, or anything else that is of eternal value outside of him. No, Lord, keep us tapped in to the flow of the fullness of Jesus. And for any who've never tasted that flow, would you do the miracle, Holy Spirit? Like you did with Lydia's heart. Just cause it to open, to blossom. Open somebody's heart to Jesus today. And let them know this full flow of the grace of Christ. Come, Lord. Do what only You can do. Be glorified. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.